Welcome to Slow and Steady, the podcast where you get to follow along as we build products in public. Each week we'll give you an honest peek into our lives as we share our struggles, our wins and everything in between. I'm Benedict and I'm feeling relaxed. I'm Benedicta. Today is April 19th. This is episode number 136 and I'm feeling confident. And with us today is Anna Mast. Anna Mast and her mother bootstrapped a two-sided marketplace called Boondockers Welcome over a period of 10 years. After selling it a year ago for a life-changing amount, she is at it again with SubscribeSense. Welcome, Anna. And how are you feeling this week? Thank you. Uh, I am feeling frustrated. I feel guilty saying that after that amazing intro, but it's true. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you feel what you feel. Any particular reason? Um, well, your typical debugging software, you know, just struggling with with bugs that are hard to track down and 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 the the software that I'm building this time around is much more dependent on like third party integrations, and it, it's a lot harder I'm finding to deal with <laughs> third party code than code that you know is all your own. There's all of these intricacies and and things that just go wrong that you're not expecting. So tell us about your new venture. What problem does it solve? Yeah, so SubscribeSense uh, is a uh, SaaS that you drop into your marketing stack that tries to help you reduce um, the number of people who don't confirm their email address for your mailing list. So my previous company, we had a pretty substantial mailing list that, you know, drove a lot of sales and uh, something that I noticed sort of far too late to actually do anything about it. It was really only when we were uh, getting ready to sell, I noticed that the number of uh, subscribers who actually confirmed their their email address was in like the 60% range. And, you know, I could look and see that most of those signups were legit signups and people who just never managed to hit that last step. There was just too much friction. So I'm trying to provide a tool that helps people uh, make sure that they're capitalizing on all of those leads who are actually interested in getting their email newsletters. That's an interesting topic. <laughs> <laughs> you might know that Benedict runs a uh, email service. I <laughs> do. Says, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be interested to hear your take on that for sure. I'm not entirely sure I have a take because while we have like double opt-in feature behind a feature flag, like it's not it's not officially part of the product yet. So I still have a lot of open questions around all of it at all times. Um, and even our current implementation is, I'm not entirely sure if it's if it's working correctly. Like, well, it's working, but like one thing we have a, an ongoing debate about is just like, basically what you just, just described, like, should we even surface that data? Like when someone submits a form and has double opt-in enabled, um, should we even tell you about them until they click the confirm link or not? So do you, do you have an opinion on that? I mean, sounds like you kind of want to know. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the, um, the email provider that we had been using um, with my previous company didn't really surface that information in any obvious way. It wasn't on a dashboard. It was, they did, however, keep track of, you know, every email that went out, including that initial um, opt-in email. So at mm -hmm. some point I just downloaded all of the 
the transactional emails that had been sent out, including that email, and was able to sort of do the math about how many people had gotten the email versus how many had actually confirmed. And that's what I really noticed that difference. And yeah, like, I don't know. Um, did I feel like I felt uh, gypped because they hadn't <laughs> shared that information <laughs> with me? Maybe a little bit. I mean, would I have changed my approach? Would I have said, forget this double opt-in, it's not worth it? Maybe. And I know the people we sold to don't have a double opt-in and I'm sure that their list has, you know, substantially larger growth because of it. So, I mean, it's nice to have all the information and make the decisions based on the information. That said, I know that the few email providers that do make that information available, I'm pretty sure they get nagged all the time by their users about why did these people not subscribe or not confirm? Is there any way that I can send them a reminder? And for a lot of them, that's just not their, you know, it's not in their interest to, to necessarily diagnose those issues or deal with it. Um, and I was actually, I was chatting with Rob Walling about it at MicroConf last week because he, of course, <laughs> also used to run <laughs> a marketing email service. And, you know, he said that I think they did send out a reminder. They they defaulted to a double opt-in and they did send out a reminder or they thought about it, but then they were worried about sort of how um, the deliverability of that might affect them because obviously if people didn't respond to the first one, pretty good odds, they're not going to respond to the second one. And so that was sort of a, a big debate for them. So it's also an issue that I'm, you know, trying to keep in mind as I deal with that. But I'm hoping that, you know, sending out a reminder email is is sort of the last tier of, of interventions that my product would use. Oh, this is... yeah. Cause what I find... Yeah, it's just because I've seen a lot of especially some, I mean, even with kind of tech tech people signing up, they often forget to hit the subscribe button. But I would imagine for like a less technically inclined audience, like it would be even easier for them to kind of not see that opt-in um, email and and confirm Um I don't know where I was going with that. I just I had a thought. I lost my thought. <laughs> I mean, it depends how cluttered your inbox is. And then, yes. you know, some people have, you know, their SPF and DKIM records aren't set up properly. And so that email doesn't actually make it to the inbox. It's buried in spam somewhere. And, you know, if if you're uh, the people who are sending out these marketing emails, if they are not necessarily technically inclined enough to have all of those ducks in a row, then their lists are going to suffer because of that. And um, so that's one of the um, the, the uh, interventions that I uh, am introducing is just what I didn't coin this term, but what somebody coined a term of a sniper link, which is essentially um, on your confirmation page, it says, you know, please go confirm. And then there's actually a link directly into your inbox, depending on who your mail provider is, um, that has the the search parameter for the email you're looking for in the URL. So that, you know, if you're a Gmail user, it will send you to your Gmail and pull up the email exactly that's coming from benedict.userlist.com, right? So um, that's sort of one of the ways to help cut through the noise and get that email surfaced more easily. Oh, that's super, that is super quite clever, even though it's called Sniper Link. <laughs> There's but only a few people who have used that term, but I'm going to take it because it sounds like a cool term. So cool. No, no use reinventing the wheel. 
I've also seen inside of the blogging for devs community a lot of people redesigning their um, the page that you get to after submitting your email to be like super clear that this is just step one out of you know potentially several steps and some of them have had and that is like most of the people reading uh, developer blogs are developers so they they should know this but it turns out that changing the design and making it super clear like head over to your inbox right now and find it and search through spam and like being very um, very clear in the design has helped a lot of them increase their um, confirmation numbers. So, yeah. yeah. And telling them what to look for when they get there, right? Like just saying, go to your inbox isn't as useful mm. as saying, go to your inbox and look for an email with this subject line, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or it depends on, again, what uh, email provider you're using. Some of them, you know, you, if you just leave it as the default, the default is just, thanks for subscribing. And nobody even thinks to, you know, actually think twice about that and think maybe that's not the most useful thing for a double opt-in list. <laughs> like, yeah. Should be like, alert emoji, alert emoji, alert emoji, <laughs> confirm, yeah. alert emoji, alert emoji. <laughs> Yeah, so there are definitely lots of things people can do without paying me to solve, help help solve the problem. Um, but you know, I'm trying to come up with a, a sort of more technical and um, and repeatable solution that you know works across lots of different email providers and and is sort of dependable, depend regardless of where people are coming from and what device they're on and things like that. So you said that you had been debugging. Are you, is it you? Are you more people? <laughs> it's just me right now. Um, that's, I mean, how, my last company was just really me. And um, for the first half, my mom, who was my co-founder, and then well, more than half. And then for the last couple of years, she kind of stepped back and I hired someone who took over a lot of the customer support pieces. But I uh, really enjoy the small team and I enjoy both sides. I enjoy doing dev as well as sort of the more businessy CEO aspect Mar- marketing well I mean I enjoy marketing as much as every dev what it does which is to say <laughs> not that much but I'm, I'm learning you do it though you actually do it which is like the I guess the biggest That's <laughs> I do now most important step right <laughs> actually starting I do now I, I certainly you know when when Boonocker's Welcome launched the first oh gosh probably five years we you know pretty much surfed on the the initial launch we had a we had a really good um my, my mom who was my co-founder had uh, an email list from a previous um she she published these guides. So the Boonockers Welcome is for RVers, like camper van caravanners. And um, she had uh, published some, uh, self-published some travel guides for RVers. And she had like this great list. So we were able to use that list to sort of seed our initial membership. And we were able to ride the coattails of that for a really long time and not do any marketing. Um, and then at some point, I, you know, started paying more attention to the business and my kids started school and I had more time and and I actually, you know, had been listening to lots of like startups for the rest of us and knew all the things that I was supposed to be doing and hadn't been doing any of them. So once I started doing all those things, I was like, oh, this is how you grow a business. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm trying not to wait five years this time. So um, one thing I'm wondering about, um, and I'm seeing this more often recently is, um, People like you building tools for existing email providers and like 
multiple email providers at once that like are all lacking a certain feature and just like in your case like uh, a good double opt-in experience but like for example i i know shy Schechter is working on like a front end for managing your subscriptions and brendan dunn is working on uh, a visual email builder that works with all of the email tools um and it feels like that that ecosystem is like now becoming a are they all becoming platforms that other tools are building up on and like how did that like how did that happen why did that happen is it like all email providers are just bad at certain things or <laughs> i guess like, they all just kind of they all get into their zone of of you know genius which is just really trying to be about deliverability and then everything else are like eh, whatever we've got your money now you're you're i mean it's so <laughs> It's so easy to get, I think, tied into a provider like that. Like, you know, it's not impossible to move your list somewhere else, but, you know, it's a, enough friction that the lack of, you know, a couple of features isn't usually enough to make you want to do that. And uh, I think, yeah, if, if you're able to replace that feature for an extra 10 or 20 bucks a month without having to, you know, migrate everything over, a lot of people are just willing to take that hit. And are you worried about like the email providers picking up on your ideas and just like? Yeah, that's why I'm worried. I'm talking product? to you right now, Benedict. I don't want you to like steal my idea. Um, yeah, for sure. There's obvious, obviously, you know, um, risks with building on anybody's platform, and I'm like, I'm still essentially pre-launch. I have like one beta customer who's testing out um, my my SaaS right now, so I'm still really early. Um, and I only have one integration right now, and I'm already sort of banging my head against a wall in some ways. So I know there's going to be a lot of risks with that. Um, but the fact that, like you said, it sort of does apply broadly to a lot of different email providers, I feel like that mitigates that risk a lot. So it's like even if one of them, you know, either cuts off my API access or or replicates that um, functionality themselves that you know unless they all do i've you know at least got some kind of product that's worth selling after the email provider summit of 2023 <laughs> where they all vote to... <laughs> i'm sure there is such a summit <laughs> uh, but being both the uh developer and marketer like how do you uh how do you do, deal with that and what does a typical week look like for you? I wish I could say I had, you know, a great schedule and Monday was marketing day and the rest was development day. But realistically, I mean, I also am the parent to, to school-aged kids and, you know, and um, my husband usually is sort of more full-time and, and pre-COVID traveled a lot. So my schedule often ends up getting thrown upside down because, you know, family life gets in the way. So uh, I am not necessarily the most organized person. <laughs> it's more just, uh, you know, when opportunities present themselves, when, you know, somebody on Twitter is having a conversation about something that I think, you know, I can contribute to or, or you know, work my product into the conversation then i'll i'll hop on that but there's not really a whole lot of uh dedicated marketing time at this point anyway but coding wise though is it uh, do you have a very clear list of what you're going to do so that when you have that time you know having that you know having family that 
that will kind of interfere <laughs> because I don't know what to say. will interfere with your working time. But when you don't have that time alone and you can focus, um, do you have a kind of a system so that you can get faster into focus or does that just come naturally to you? Or not at all. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I do try to, you know, prioritize what needs to be focused on. And, you know, right now I'm um, in very early stages where, you know, I'm sort of very much still looking at what my, you know, first customer is encountering and what sort of issues with the integration were, were um, I'm, I'm seeing and sort of trying to fight all those fires. So there's a lot less like, here's my list of features I want to bang out this week. And it's more like, a, okay, what is wrong here? And what is wrong here? And why isn't this working? Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it, it's a little less organized than I would like. Um, I mean, I can go back to like when, um, when I was working on Boondockers Welcome, you know, we, I, sort of after my kids started school full-time, I did, I had like a full, um, I, I rewrote the entire tech stack and um, launched that over, a, took me probably a year of sort of working, I wouldn't say nine to five, it was more like 9.30 to 2.30 every day while they were at school. Um, but yeah, I did that for about a year and had a, you know, a really good list of all the features that I needed to implement and all the, the, the um, support to uh, migrate all of our customers from the old system to the new system. And, you know, I managed to knock all those things out in a pretty organized manner. And I hope to get to the point where I'm doing that again. Unfortunately, the beginning is kind of messy where you're trying to figure out what's important. And I, in like the MVP stage, there's so many features that I feel like, oh, this would be cool. And this would be cool. And this would be cool. But I really am trying to focus on, you know, getting out the most important features and then taking a step back and assessing and seeing, okay, are these doing what I want them to do? Is the customer getting the value from it? You know, and and I want to onboard a few more people and, and keep doing that and, and iterating and talking to them and then sort of deciding where I need to go from there. I do you feel it. like because... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, I just said I love it. <laughs> okay. An honest you have answer. A follow up question. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Go ahead, Benedict. Okay. So um, I was wondering, like, as this is like your second time around, basically, do you feel like the pressure is higher, or the expectations are higher, or is it just like yes and from no? And feeling like yeah, we can. I just try a different thing and this has nothing to do with the previous one and like there's no pressure and I can try over and over again or do you feel like the first I mean, one was successful in in a way like depending on I mean obviously it was a success but do you yeah. feel like the, the second time it has to go the same route or <laughs> like, I mean it would sure be know. nice um I think like during my first startup I was very I wasn't really a part of the startup community. I wasn't on Twitter. I wasn't, you know, on indie hackers. I wasn't, you know, really going to microconf until sort of the very end. And so, I mean, there any any pressure to do well was fully, you know, internal pressure from me. And, you know, for the first five or six years of running the company, it was really just like a, you know, something I did on the side while I was being a full-time parent. And then it wasn't until, you know, it 
became sort of enough, uh, had enough revenue that I was like, oh, this, this is actually a real company and I should really actually focus on this. Um, but now that, now that I've, you know, been successful and, you know, talked about it on a bunch of podcasts and talked about it on Twitter. And now it's like, oh, there are people who are actually watching me and like, you know, that, I don't know, that, that maybe they are not putting the pressure on me, but that makes me put even more pressure on myself to not be like the disappointment, the, the one hit wonder, right? But do you feel, because we saw that, um, I guess you saw that talk too with the Dr. Sherry Walling on MicroConf on kind of the messiness of exiting and how a lot of um, founder look at it as, you know, a large part of their identity and after exiting kind of needs to have another project like that for their identity or to just fill their time or so, you know, like why, why are you starting another one? Why not just... You know, yeah. back, relax, enjoy. <laughs> um, I, I think, yeah, there is a lot of what, what Dr. Walling said that rings true in that where I, my identity wasn't necessarily tied up with that company that I sold, which was good because it made parting with it, you know, actually not an emotional roller coaster. Um, but, you know, at, at some point you realize you, your or for me, my identity is kind of tied up now with this building and, and founder, um, ecosystem. And, um, I, and I'm really enjoying it. Like this was, you know, I, I was always, you know, a technically inclined, good at math and science kind of, you know, kid, teenager, whatever, but I was never necessarily like the 10X developer. <laughs> um, but I was also, you know, a, people person and I was good at communication and I was good at sort of all of these other things. And so I've really found entrepreneurship is just a fantastic way to take all of those different pieces and, and put them into action. Right. It's like, I, I, I'm not enough good, good enough developer to be a 10 X developer and to be like the best individual contributor at my company. And I hate, you know, being a people manager and that's not something I ever wanted to do. And like, you know, when they made me do it at work, I was like, this is garbage. I don't want to do this anymore, <laughs> but I am okay at like managing a few people doing something that I care about and like directing a product that that, you know, I care about and doing some development in areas that I care about. And, you know, it's, it, it doesn't have to be perfect and that's fine. And I, it's my product on the line. If, if the development isn't awesome, then that's my, my, uh, my cross to bear. So I, yeah, I, it honestly, and getting back to your question, do I feel like my personality is wrapped up in being a founder? Kind of. Um, on the other hand, like, what the heck else am I going to do? I <laughs> I still have two kids who are like the oldest one is 12. Like they're not going to, you know, move out and, and go to college for at least another like six or eight years. And, um, you know, the idea of being retired and sitting at home while they're at school all day just sounds really boring. And so, you know, if I was going to be retired, I'd love to travel and I can't really do that right now. Plus it's COVID and all these other things. And so it just seemed natural to just do what I've learned how to do and see if I can do it even better next time. Great. So very relatable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And also I saw you tweeted like, what's up with a second, like an extra Monday of vacation of school being closed. I had that exact feeling on that exact day sitting in the mountains. I'm like, I've been traveling so much. The listeners know, and you know, we met at microconf and, and then finally on that last day of vacation, I just, I just want to get home and do some coding. I did a little bit of recreational coding on vacation, but like, I was like, I'm, I want to get back to it. Like, <laughs> it's fun. Like, that's yeah. why, that's why we do I it. love my kids, but we've spent so much time together over the last <laughs> two years. Like every day that I can get them out of the house is a good day. <laughs> Absolutely. So we were, and we were also very happy that school is back on today. Um, that was a, got a lot of done. It feels like days since I was in the mountains yesterday. Wow. <laughs> Weird. Anyway, we're not talking about me. <laughs> how yeah. long, well, we can, how long um, did it take from kind of the exit wrapping up and things being done until you got that itch? That like uh, I need to do a new thing. Like not at all. The the two totally overlapped. I um we closed the the deal in May of last year and our acquirers um I, I worked essentially on contract for them for six months to sort of transition everything over. Um and so it wasn't full-time hours that I was working for them. So it was pretty much, you know, when I wasn't working for them, I was starting to think about what the next opportunity was going to be for me and sort of starting to brainstorm about problems that I had struggled with, with Boondockers Welcome. And I actually did the thing where you talk to people this time and <laughs> ask them about, you know, you know I, I read uh, Michelle Hansen's book about deploy empathy, about, you know, talking to your customers and, and interviewed people and had a couple of ideas and sort of this is the one that seems to resonate most with the people I talked to. So, uh, What have you learned with um, Boondockers Welcome that you're going to continue doing with this new product and what are some things you will not be doing this time around? So I've definitely learned, you know, the value of, you know, a bunch of different marketing channels that worked really well for us there. And, you know, they won't necessarily all translate because that was a sort of B2C product versus a B2B product. But um, we had a lot of success with sort of affiliate marketing. And I think there is some um, some space for that and sort of there's a lot of like bloggers writing for other bloggers or newsletter um, you know email marketing type people and and some affiliate um, marketing uh, channels could really I think work in that regard so that's something that I would like to eventually explore um, obviously you know just having some good content marketing SEO is something that I plan to focus on. I haven't gotten there yet. And I know that's probably something I should be starting sooner than later because it takes a long time for SEO to build up. And I know that and I'm still not doing it, but it's on my list. Um, but I mean, there's lots of things I won't be doing, mostly uh, starting a B2C marketplace bootstrap, <laughs> because that's just an insane thing that only somebody who has never really paid any attention to anybody's advice would do. And that's the only reason I did it is because I didn't know any better. But it worked. Yeah, but obviously it worked out. So maybe everyone else is wrong. Yeah, I 
it's tough. I mean, I've talked to a few people sort of since who are like, oh, wow, you did this thing that I'm trying to do where you're building a B2C marketplace. And all I want to do is say, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Just because I was successful doesn't mean you'll be successful. <laughs> um, I mean, we were lucky. Like I said, we had a, you know, a, an unfair advantage with that sort of initial list of, of people who really seeded the marketplace. And we had a lot of um, sort of fans from that prior to even launching. You know, my mom had built a, a, a really strong sort of uh, fan base already. She had actually been profiled in the New York Times for like her guides on, you know, RVing on the cheap in in the United States. So um, that was really like, you know, an unfair advantage that unless you have that going in, I would never recommend doing what we did. Mm. But now I have a side. Like, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Benedict. Uh, do you feel like it was also related to, and I have no idea about the details of Boondacker's welcome, but it, at least from the outside, it sounds to me that everyone who's participating is basically a host and also most likely someone who's than visiting other other hosts and yeah, that was see both sides at the same time. Yeah, that is absolutely one hundred percent true, and that's you know a lot of people who are thinking about mar two sided marketplaces. That is, I think, even the bigger struggle is that you've essentially got two disparate groups and you're trying to deal with both of them at the same time. And yeah, we had essentially one group. It was like you could be a host, you could be a guest, you could be both. And at the beginning, most people were both, and so it was a lot easier to start off. So mm. if, if you can, you know, have a two-sided marketplace where it's not really two sides, it's like two <laughs> sides of the same coin, then then that's maybe an advantage to that. But it's still still um, an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. So it's my side, my side uh, question here. Like, how did your mom get started with the the digital guides for RVs? I mean, like. That's the uh, gateway you know, drug, right? Everybody says true. like an info product. Info product. And, she, and she did it. And I'm guessing she didn't kind of read about that and like or listen to startup for the it probably wasn't even started. You know, it's interesting. I feel like she should get on one of these podcasts and she's she not should. she doesn't she doesn't like That's she doesn't like doing that at all. So she won't do it. But um I honestly, it was, I was totally not a part of that at all. Like, despite the fact that I have the, you know, computer engineering background and she didn't, um, she, I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe she had a friend who had like, a, you know, a website and was selling an info product and it was like this site build it, um, software that was supposed to, you know, do a lot of the SEO work for you. And so it was sort of this full package that that she used to to launch that and i mean she she is a very good you know writer and very organized more organized than me um and so she she did write like these amazing guides that were very you know well organized and the the quality of the info product that she put out was fantastic um but yeah i think she just sort of learned as she went and she saw somebody else doing it and had a little bit of um of of a brain to pick for for that and just went for it and she started she started RVing in 2000 so that was I was like uh, just finishing university I guess at that point and so she like you know gave me all my stuff that was still at the house and was like okay I'm you know I'm putting everything else I own in storage and and hitting the road for a year so um, but she did that, you know, she she would have traveled for she traveled for that full year. And then sort of her and my stepdad 
um, would go at, they would come home for like six months and then go out and hit the road again for another six months. And they did that back and forth for a while. And they did it like they were so frugal is the the more generous word rather than cheap. They were so frugal when they did that, that they could actually live for less on the road than they did at home because they weren't paying rent. They, you know, would stay in free on like free land, like in public forests and sort of all in the, in America, there's like all of this land that you can park camp in for free essentially. So they, they, you know, did that so affordably. And then she's like, everybody should be doing this. And so she started these guides and yeah, I, I think it was all SEO that managed to drive traffic to her. And she had been doing that for, um, she probably had the guides for like five years or six years before she came to me with the idea for Boondockers Welcome. I love that part of the story that your mom is just like, I'm hitting oh, the yeah. road. And then like talking to somebody, it's like, I can totally make a website and sell downloadable goods, which, you know, was pre-Stripe, which we always end up talking about this on this show. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's like, and, and then she came to you with that idea and you're like, yeah, but then, okay, you know, I'll help my mom. And then. Not yeah, doing. yeah. The, it took some the years, story was but... that she she came to me and said, I want to start this, you know, like couch surfing, but for our viewers um, platform. And she was originally she was looking for my advice on like where she could hire someone to write the, the website for her. And I was kind of like, oh, that's going to cost a lot of money. And why don't you I was on maternity leave at the time and we get 12 months of maternity leave here in Canada. So I was like, why don't you just come hang out with your grandson and I'll like plug away at this and see if I can build something for us. And so it took me like two maternity leaves. It was, you know, definitely the, the world's slowest MVP. But um, but, you know, we did eventually launch it. And eventually, it you know, grew up with my kids to be something pretty special. So it was cool. And now my mom is actually retired, retired, retired. She retired nice. and then she retired <laughs> again. That's right. Um, I, because uh, you said, I think I noted that you actually have a degree in code, like that has to do with coding. Yeah, I have a computer engineering degree. I mean, I, I it's interesting. I don't know now if I would necessarily say, you know, it's worth your effort to go get a computer engineering degree, or if you can just pretty much learn everything you need to learn on the internet. Like I have a degree, like I learned how to write code in like C and C++. So, you know, the, a lot of those skills are translatable, but it's not web development. Like everything that I do now is stuff that I pretty much learned on the internet. Right. Like it's, um, and my 12 year old probably knows, you know, as much now as I did when I was graduating, <laughs> just, just like about how to code. Right. Like he, he, he's like building unity video games and stuff. And, and it's like, you can learn everything online these days. But it's, it's nice. We usually interview people and, and uh, talk about that. And we've had a lot of uh, self-taught developers on and I'm, I'm kind of always amazed that they've they've managed to to get to that level but also like with your mom I've I've you know seen that they kind of go at it a little bit of a different way while as you mentioned it took you quite a while to build that MVP probably I'm guessing because you might have over engineered it a little bit in the beginning <laughs> not I mean yes and no it, yeah. I mean I I built it on 
just on top of like Drupal CMS. So it was like, I wasn't even, you know, writing a whole lot of code from scratch. It was a lot of gluing together different modules to do stuff that I wanted it to do and, and some custom PHP code. And, um, at the time, you know, I didn't really know anything about web dev and that was sort of the easiest, uh, easiest way into it for me. And then I rewrote the entire thing in Django um, about five years later. And then, you know, I had a lot more flexibility to actually get it to do exactly what I wanted to, it to do. Um, but yeah, that that first first MVP was, it wasn't over-engineered necessarily uh, so much as it was, you know, me using a tool that wasn't probably the right tool, but was the easiest thing for me to figure out how to do. And it just took a lot longer. And, you know, I was only working, you know, five or six hours a week, really, because I had, you know, little, little people and, you know, my mom would come over, but it was only once, once a week or so. And, and, and then I went back to my real job at some point and it, it just, and, and it wasn't, high priority. Like my mom wanted to do this and I wanted to do it, but it was definitely not, you know, the number one thing in my life for those two years. But what got you going back to it again and again? Like you said, you had a real job, you were doing it kind of on the side for your mom. So kind of how, what do you think made you actually like finish over that uh, period of time? probably just the fact that I told my mom I would do it. And I was <laughs> like, I'm going to feel bad if I don't actually finish this. So, um, I mean, it, 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 it turned out just fine in that, you know, she managed to build her list, you know, considerably more during that time that it took me to build it so that when we launched, we really did have a, enough of a splash to sort of carry us for a while. Um, and it was still, it was 2012 when we launched and, um, like RVing was popular, but, um, like people didn't necessarily have like their laptops on the road with like those little mobile hotspots as frequently any earlier than that. And that was kind of imperative to being able to use the platform was to be able to have, you know, really reliable internet on the road. And, and, you know, like I didn't get my first smartphone until like 2010 and, you know, we didn't have a mobile app until quite a long time later. So it was kind of necessary for the world, for the technology, technology to really get to the point where it was yeah. viable. So it, it worked out. Okay. I think. Yeah, I'm just asking you, because, did, like, I'm trying to get all this, like, slow and steady. This is, like, my thing. Joining this show. Slow and steady is definitely I, the right the Join right this show in, in, like, trying to, like, infuse myself with the slow and steady mentality and, like, sticking with things. So, you know, it's not trying to, like, critique it. I'm trying to understand how I also can <laughs> stick with things over uh, yeah, having an external time. having an external person who you feel sort of responsible to definitely helps in that respect. And yeah, that's that what I'm using you guys and Twitter for this time around. It's like, okay, if I say on Twitter that I'm going to do this, then I should probably do it. I'm the same way. <laughs> yep, that helps. <laughs> I mean, it's, in a way, this is what the podcast is for for us, right? Like showing up every week and then feeling guilty about not having made any progress since last week. <laughs> Super embarrassed to be like, oh, I said I was going to do that in December, but yeah, it's still yeah. Still like there. at some point, like when 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 some things take too much too long 
to finish and at some point it becomes embarrassing to talk about it on the podcast so you'd rather finish it (laughs) (laughs) mention again that you still haven't finished it (laughs) by the way one 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 thought uh one question came up when you were talking about like having the technology like adapt to the um yeah like being being an enabler for the platform did like did the pandemic help with that as well did like uh, yeah, I, I imagine RVing became super popular, and yeah, uh, that probably it, was noticeable in the numbers. It was definitely noticeable, and it was a huge, a huge part of you know the the growth that we saw sort of in the year leading up to when we did sell, and um, I you know had had a lot to do with sort of the the valuation that we were able to get when we sold, and was part of the reason that. I mean, we could have maybe continued to see that growth and, and, you know, it looks like right now RVing is still pretty popular in that, that could have kept going. But at the same time, you're kind of like, well, maybe we shouldn't ride this over the top and maybe we'll just cash out now while, you know, everything's doing well. And, you know, at some point, everybody's going to be sick of RVing and want to like go on a cruise again. And uh, I don't know, maybe we're getting to that point already, but it, 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 we we definitely um, benefited a lot from that, so I, I I feel guilty in you know being a person who benefited from COVID. Although I think there's a lot of you know remote work, uh, SaaS tools and stuff like lots of people did. So I'm certainly not the only one in that boat. And sometimes like it's okay to just be uh, just be lucky and like just like be there at the right time. I mean, yeah. I feel like a lot of the like big successes that we hear about is just like people being on it and working on it and then just like being there at the right moment in time when it yeah. suddenly becomes more important than everyone was able to anticipate. So I Yeah, and that's exactly Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I will I will not feel guilty. I mean, that's exactly what happened to us, right? I mean, I tell the story about we did like this little mini accelerator here in town that was like focused on female founders, but it was mostly sort of geared towards getting your slide deck ready to pitch investors, which was not really something that we were interested in. But, you know, as part of that, you like did this speed dating thing with investors where you would like talk to a bunch of different ones and tell them your startup. And like, nobody was even remotely interested in investing in our, (laughs) you know, platform. And this was back in like, I don't know, 2016, 2017. But then when the pandemic hit, it's like RVing really took off and like a bunch of other businesses that, you know, the investors previously maybe maybe would have been focused on suddenly weren't profitable anymore or weren't, you know, growing. And so all of a sudden, I we had all this inbound interest from people who were like, oh, we would like to talk to you about maybe investing. I was like, oh, how interesting how the tables have turned. Yeah. So can you share yeah. a little bit more, more about the process of how the um, how the sale came about? Yeah, so there um, there, there's, you know, lots of companies in the RV space, but in particular, our space is what I would call alternative camping. Um, and there was another company in that same space, um, called Harvest Hosts. And whereas we sort of arranged stays with other RVers on their property, Harvest Hosts, um, had essentially, um, a, a list of, uh, wineries, farms, breweries that would let you park at their businesses um, 
for free overnight. And it worked on an annual membership system, which is the same uh, business model that we used. And a lot of uh, our customers were also their customers. There was a lot of overlap. People would have memberships in both programs. And um, we had been friendly with the owners of that company for quite a few years. And they actually, you know, they got acquired. It was an older couple originally who started it. They got acquired by a young tech guy who loved RVing and had exited from a previous company and, you know, really loved the concept and wanted to build that company up. And so, you know, I continued sort of a, a relationship with him once he took over. And um, I guess early last year, um, they took a bunch of funding. They announced that they had taken $37 million in funding. Um, and he had reached out to me, you know, at the beginning of the year and said, you know, for it all interested in selling, you know, just let me know. And at that point, you know, I wasn't necessarily ready or interested, but um, I, he was insistent. And uh, at some point, we just kind of said, well, let, let's see, you know, if if we can get this amount of money that seems kind of ridiculous and life changing, then I think we would be ready to to move on and see what's next in our lives. And that's pretty much what happened. So and it felt like it was the best um, the best possible acquirer for us because so many of our customers are, were already familiar with them. Um, we knew that they really understood sort of what the community, like because our hosts didn't take money, that it was really about a community aspect. Our hosts were our viewers themselves who usually um, really are only hosting because they enjoy the social aspect of, you know, meeting all these people often. They have stopped RVing because they've gotten older, but they still really enjoy that RV community. And so it was really important to us that our acquirers sort of understand that mentality and and keep that intact. And um, and Harvest Hosts was prepared to do that and knew knew that that was um, that that was important to the to to the product that it wouldn't really function without that. So it. It was the best possible acquirer for us, and at a time when they had taken a bunch of money, and uh, <laughs> seemed like it was pretty obvious that we could maybe have a chunk of that. What is that <laughs> called? Because I just learned some, like heard people talk about this at Microconf. Because there's like that's a strategic buy, yeah, or like a strategic acquirer, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we had done like. Um, you know, gotten valuations done by like some of the brokers that, you know, will do like a valuation based on your PL statements and say, you know, oh, based on your growth and your revenue, then, you know, we think you could probably solve for this value, right? And because it was definitely a strategic acquisition, um, we managed to get quite a bit more than that sort of baseline valuation. I think we're uh, we're coming to a close, but since we are all developers, and you mentioned that you did the the, the last MVP in a framework you weren't that familiar with, and then you rewrote it. So, what's the current stack? Oh, you know, I played around with like a bunch of different things, thinking, oh, I'm gonna try something else this time. I I did. I went and, like. I have like 
you know, a, a next.js portfolio site that I was playing around with. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this in Jamstack. That'll be so cool. And then I was like, oh, you know what, though? If I actually want to actually get anything done, I should probably just use something <laughs> I know. So I am just using Django with um, some vanilla JavaScript. I have a little bit of React in there, too. But it's uh, mostly just Django Python on the back end and a little bit of JavaScript on the front. And until it's broken, I ain't going to fix it. I mean, that's the message to all your kids out there. Use the tech you know <laughs> if you actually want to build a business. <laughs> There's so many other hard things to do that technology choice shouldn't be the one thing you struggle with. Exactly. Exactly. Um, anything you want to tell our listeners about before we leave that we forgot to to ask you about? Well, if you're interested in learning more about SubscribeSense, you can sign up for our beta waitlist at subscribesense.com. And if you want to follow my journey, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at schoolgirl, where school is spelled S-K-U-L-E, which we call the metric spelling. The metric. Because, <laughs> yeah, we forgot to ask. You're in, in, in Canada. I think That's you right. mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, and also, I am hoping for more music videos coming on Anna's Twitter. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, there will be a link in the description to the magnificent Mariah <laughs> Carey cover with with the with the new title. What did you title it? I remember some of the, the chorus, but... Uh, it's... Uh... All I want's a higher arpu to the tune of All I Want for Christmas is You. This is yeah. So it's that's that's what I did between my uh, between my acquisition <laughs> and launching my new company was I made a silly music video because that's just something I enjoy. And it's magnificent. And the link will be in the description because I met people at Microconf who had not seen it, which is a sin. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but if I'm remembered out. for anything, that's what I want to be remembered for. Mariah Carey parody. I mean, making people laugh and having like true good fun interactions online, that is absolutely something. Uh, you know, spreading chair is worth is worth it, worth doing online these days. Um, I agree. Yeah. Totally. So check out those um, links in the description and maybe we'll check out check in with Anna in a month or no, six months or a year and see where she's at with uh, subscribe sense. I guess that's it. That's good. Well, yeah. Thanks. See you next week. See you around the interwebs. Bye.